We are in a, a new summer series, which we're still in the Gospel of Matthew, surprise. But we are in this new summer series called Stories by Jesus. In the Gospels, we find that Jesus is the master storyteller, probably like Heidi. And uh, far more often than actually giving a, a clear teaching, Jesus engages the crowd with stories or parables, as they are often called. These stories were confounding, confusing. Very often, even the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was trying to say to them. If it were not for those explanations written in the Gospels after the parables, I think that very often we would be left asking the question, what is going on with that story? I thought about talking about this morning about why Jesus spoke in parables. We could unpack that question. Uh, there are many reasons for it, but, but I didn't want to spend our time doing that. I just wanted to get into the parables, and we're going to look in Matthew 13. But I will offer one suggestion for the reason why Jesus often chose to speak in parables rather than teaching. I believe that Jesus taught in parables because he didn't want people to understand too quickly. Rather, the mark of the disciple, the follower of Jesus, is that they hear the words of Jesus and then they begin to wrestle with them. It's the difference between the crowd and the disciples. The crowd hears the story and goes on and they go home, but the disciples let that story keep working on them. And so Jesus will tell a parable, then he'll tell a couple more parables, and then the disciples will come and they'll ask a question about that story three parables ago. Well, Jesus, what about that one? That one didn't make sense. What is the meaning of the story? Which character is God in the story? It, it, hint, it's not always the most powerful. God is not always the king in every parable. Who, who am I in this story? Do I understand it? And so parables are this invitation to wrestle with the words of Jesus. It reminds me of the story of Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32. In, in the story, Jacob... Uh, hangs on to God. He wrestles with God through the night with this ferocious tenacity. He refuses to let go of God until he receives a blessing. Eventually, he does receive his blessing, but he is also left with an incurable limp. So parables then are an invitation to wrestle with the words of Jesus, to hang on to it until it reveals itself to us and leaves us changed. So we walk through these as we walk through the parables this summer I, I want to start by saying clearly that as much as my own tendency is to teach and to try and explain things these parables I, i'm not sure that it's that simple the the disciples react to jesus parables the the reaction that they give to these parables gives me pause maybe it's not so easy to understand it maybe just that first reading isn't quite right maybe i need to spend more time with it. And so let's read two of these stories by Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 31 to 33, reading from the Common English Bible. He, Jesus, told another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and planted in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's the largest of all vegetable plants. It becomes a tree that the birds in the sky come and nest in the branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat flour 
until the yeast had worked its way through all the dough. So first, uh, reading these stories, what's obvious to the people who heard Jesus that isn't obvious to us now? What are some of the things we need to know so that we can understand this parable? Well, let's talk about a mustard bush. Jesus is talking about this mustard plant. In Galilee, at its best, a mustard seed would grow to be a shrub that was 8 to 10 feet tall. So a tree is a little bit of an exaggeration. More like a lilac bush. This also means that birds didn't usually build a nest in it. it was, other translations say the birds come and rest in its leaves. So that's probably a little bit more accurate because we're not talking about a mighty oak tree, but we're talking about a lilac shrub, an 8 to 10 foot bush. They also are really wide if you look up pictures. Another thing that we might not catch, this woman with a bushel of wheat flour. That is a lot of flour, 50 pounds of flour. I thought about bringing two big Costco bags of flour in and just setting them down, right? A woman takes two big Costco bags of flour and pours it in and begins to knead it. It is believed that 50 pounds is the most that one person can knead. That's the most flour that a single person can do. It's crazy, right? This lady is going crazy in her house. There were bakeries that would make this much bread in the time of Jesus. It wasn't But Jesus tells the story of a housewife, a Galilean housewife, making enough bread to feed over a hundred people. It's a lot of bread. It's a lot of flour. Another way that we might miss, especially in this translation, some translations will talk about three measures of flour, which would call to mind the story of Sarah as she meets these divine messengers visiting her and Abraham in Genesis 18. So perhaps it's the story of a lady preparing for a feast. Preparing to meet the divine. There's another thing, though, that certainly should cause us to pause and question, is that is that yeast was often a Jewish symbol for evil or sin. The chap- three chapters later, Jesus will warn the disciples, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, yeast was not universally a bad thing. The Jewish people did eat bread with yeast in it. They offered bread made with yeast as a sacrifice for some festivals. So it's not always a symbol of evil, but it's often enough that maybe we need to read this parable again and ask some questions about the yeast. It's certainly true that when we hide our sin even under a massive pile of good flour, it still finds its way out. Sin will always be revealed in the kingdom of God, just like bread made with yeast will eventually begin to rise and give itself away. So Matthew 13. Jesus told another parable to him. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and planted in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the largest of all vegetable plants. It becomes a tree that the birds in the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat flour until the yeast had worked its way through all the dough. As I reflected on these parables this week, the theme that I was drawn to was the theme of waiting. We can actually group the previous parable 
the one about the wheat and the weeds growing together into that theme as well. These parables are about waiting, and waiting is hard. The disciples have heard Jesus declare that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That They have seen King Jesus powerfully perform signs of the presence, reign, and rule of God. The disciples have seen the reign of God coming and are not very interested in, in it happening at God's pace, at God's speed. They're ready for the kingdom to come now. And the kingdom of God is like a bush. A bush that does not go from seed to eight feet overnight. No, the kingdom of God is slow, like a plant. I'm not a good baker. Uh, Every time I try to make pizza dough, it turns out rock hard and flat. The yeast never works. Nikki, on the other hand, is an incredible baker, and you have all sampled her her uh, baking as she makes the bread for the Lord's table. Some days, though, on Saturday nights, late in the evening, I look at Nikki and I say, oops, I forgot to ask, can you make bread tonight? (laughs) Which, when our house is not 31 degrees, she says, sure. So what do you do? You mix the dough, and I watch as she mixes the flour, those other things that make the bread good she adds the yeast and then sometimes especially in winter she'll try to make the bread rise a little faster so that we can go to bed eventually so you turn on the oven and you take the bowl and you put the dough next to the vent and you hope that the heat will get the yeast moving a little faster will cause the bread to rise a little quicker but you know what still takes time for the yeast to do its work. You can do some things to try and pick up the pace a little bit, but ultimately you are at the mercy of the yeast and the speed that it will go is the speed that it will go and you still have to be patient. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is coming, but the followers of Jesus are going to have to wait. They're going to have to be patient. So N.T. Wright said, somehow Jesus wanted his followers to live in the tension of believing that the kingdom was indeed arriving in and through his work and that his kingdom would come and fully arrive, not all in a bang, but through the process like the slow growth of a plant or the steady leavening of bread. This week I was reading a book called The Unsettling Word. It's a biblical experimentation in decolonization, is the subtitle. I was struck by the failure of Solomon to move at God's speed when it came to building the temple. 2 Chronicles 2 verse 1 says, Solomon decided to build a house for God. Before God asked, he decided that he would do it. So what's interesting is the way Solomon goes ahead with his plan, but what happens is he incurs a massive national debt. A debt so large that he ends up selling his people and 20 cities to the king of Tyre to pay for the building of the temple. He enslaves his own nation to pay for the debt. We learn in Kings that Solomon oppressively built the temple on the backs of some of the tribes of Israel while exempting his own tribe, Judah, from the work. The result of Solomon deciding to build the kingdom, deciding to build the house of God before God asks, 
is a massive national debt, selling his people to a foreign king, enslaving his own people in forced labor, which eventually leads to violence, destruction. It is the end of a unified Israel. It has me thinking the kingdom of heaven comes slowly. It requires patience and waiting. And the result of running ahead of God is disaster. Where do we need to slow down? To be patient. Understand that God moves at a pace slower than ours. If I'm not living in that tension, if I am running in front of God, if I am running ahead, it is dangerous. At the same time, though, Anna Case Winters puts in her commentary, followers of Jesus are not to become discouraged because they do not yet see the fullness of God's reign. They are assured by these parables that it is growing in their midst, midst even now and will surely come in the fullness that is great beyond all expectations. So be patient, but also be hopeful. This leads me to the second thought of the parables, is that both of these parables, we see that the kingdom of God is much greater and grander than what we initially saw. A seed the size of a pinhead becomes a tree. Yeast becomes food for a hundred people. You see, the kingdom of heaven moves from small and hidden to great and visible. The idea of hiding yeast in the flour has made me think about Jesus this week. It has reminded me of the way that Jesus, after his death, his body is hidden in a tomb for three days. And while everyone else went on with their life, and the world was apparently the same as before, the unseen reality, the unseen reality was that while Jesus was in the tomb, the world was being remade. Those men and women who followed Jesus didn't know it yet, but the world was completely different. God was busy was working in the hiddenness of darkness and death, setting the captives free, delivering creation from its bondage to sin and death. Jesus was remaking the world, and his resurrection is the evidence that while Jesus' body was hidden in the tomb for three days, it was working quietly, powerfully, bringing new life to the world. Just like we can only see the work of the yeast Later, as you see the dough rise. So today, we can see the result of the powerful working of Jesus in the tomb. We who follow Jesus give testimony to the ways in which Jesus is working in our lives, delivering us, healing us, encouraging us, giving us new life, new hope. We give testimony to the fact that even though we do not see Jesus here with us right now in the same way that I can see you, Jesus is nonetheless present here now, working like yeast in the flower. Which leads me to one last observation about this story, its purpose. The mustard shrub provides a place of rest for the birds, a place of shade in a hot desert land. Bread provides a feast for a hundred people, and so the kingdom of God is meant for all people. Birds is a common way of talking about the Gentile nations. The birds come and will find rest in the kingdom of God. And so the nations find their place. It's not exclusive. It welcomes all to come and find shade and rest. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a feast, an overabundance of bread for those who are hungry, for those who want to come and fellowship. There's more than enough bread if you make 50 pounds of flour for everyone to come and share. So the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard shrub or like yeast in a dough. It comes slowly, unobserved. It requires those who want to be kingdom people to be patient, not running ahead, not putting the dough in the oven before the yeast has worked its way through all of the flour. The kingdom of heaven works in unseen ways, but it is unstoppable. Kingdom people are not discouraged when it seems as though nothing is happening. Rather, we are to trust that God makes things grow. God works in unseen, in the unseen. There is no greater revelation of that than when Jesus comes out of the tomb. And finally, the kingdom of God will produce an abundance of what we need. And so we are all invited to come and enter to find rest and healing and freedom and food. These stories have been really meaningful to me this week in particular. I'll admit, there have been a few moments in the last few months where I've kind of wondered, what are we doing as a church? We we don't have enough people to make this thing work. We, We haven't sung in probably about eight weeks until today. Thanks, Scott. Uh, we, we don't have enough musicians. We don't have enough worship leaders. We don't have a tech person. Sometimes it feels like we just don't have enough people to make gathering on a Sunday work. We're, we're missing a lot of people on a long weekend. They disappear and then we're so small. Is this community sustainable? Can we make it? Can we do the things that God is inviting us to do? And I, I then get caught up in like, how do we make this thing grow? What's our plan? How am I going to make this thing go? And those questions were really strong for me this week. And then at the end of this week, I read these stories about really small things that just are unstoppable. I looked through our contact list for our church, and I was amazed. Three summers ago, I started to work at Forest Grove Community Church to lead Northsite. I started to work with a core group that had been meeting since 2017. I came alongside them and we worked through 2018. We tried to figure out, who are we? What are we doing? How are, what's, what's our vision? What's our plan? What is it that we want to do? And then in the summer of 2019, we had a visit by a man, two, two men, Dave and Hakan, who served together in Central Asia. Uh, Hakan is the guy on your right. (laughs) This is them baptizing a a believer in Central Asia in a bathtub as their church grows. I just love this picture. So Dave on the far right, and then Hakan, two over, came and they prayed with us. They prayed with us. And Hakan had a word for us as a church. For Northside, he said, turn on the lights in the neighborhood. And so we did. We didn't really have much of a plan. We uh, have this temporary placeholder name called Northside that we <laughs> have just sort of had for four years now. We didn't have a sign. Eventually we got a cheap rental sign that we put out and all it said was worship services, 10 a.m. And we started to meet. We prayed that God would send us people. So we started meeting publicly here on September 8th, 2019, seven months before a global pandemic made it impossible for us to meet together. 
here's what you need to know. The powerful part for me. The yeast that is working. The unseen faithfulness of God who builds His church. When I looked through our contact list, the core group that started back in 2017, we have grown by more than 100%. In the midst of a global pandemic in which we could not meet, where our doors were only open for seven months, we doubled. Through a pandemic, some of you have found your way to us. You have prayed with us. You have wept with us. You have shared your money with us, your resources. You have stuck with this really small, inadequate group of people, and the light of Jesus is shining through you. It's unbelievable. To me, this congregation is one of the most clear images of what these stories look like. And I would be the first to admit, there are days in which I am discouraged as a pastor. We have this tiny little site, and I was sharing with my friends and pastors this week that I'm concerned that we haven't hit a critical mass to to keep us moving and growing and sustaining. I, I grieve that there are not kids my own kids' age for them to play with and to be a part of. I Wonder, how are we supposed to grow this thing? And then I look around, and I say, but Christ is building his church. We have more than doubled as a congregation during a global pandemic. Who else could do that but God working through each of us? Now, this doesn't mean that we don't work with God. We don't do things. We, we do need to do things to grow this congregation. We need more people who want to follow Jesus so that our light and our ministry grows and and that light isn't just a little flickering candle from this place, but that it radiates the light of God, the love of God to our whole neighborhood, our whole city, wherever we find ourselves. We need to keep inviting people to join us this next year. But maybe don't invite them until after our break. Like, not until August, right? um, But this is a community that I believe you should be proud of. It is a good one. It is a group of people who passionately love Jesus and want to love and serve their neighbor. That's what we're about. We are being formed in the way of Christ in community so that we can scatter and we can show the love of Christ to all we meet. And then we invite them to come and see what God is doing in our lives here in our church. Then we go back out and we come back in. It's like a tide in and out. It's slow. Sometimes it's even imperceptible how the water keeps rising and rising until all of a sudden your sandcastle's gone and you're about to lose your cooler to the sea. The kingdom of heaven is coming. It is slow. Sometimes unnoticeably tiny what is happening around us. But then, all of a sudden, we realize that we made way too much bread. We have loaves for a hundred people and we're going to have to invite the whole town to help us come and eat. 